0: Good morning. Can't tell you how close the word evening was on the tip of my lips. You don't know it, but there was a whole fight right here in three seconds, not to say evening. I was working hard. Glad to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you turn to the book of James. That's where we'll be this morning. Last week, if you were with us, and we're very thankful that you're here with us. If you were, we talked about Paul's rights. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul frequently talks about our liberty in Christ. To the Galatian brethren, Paul would simply say, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Why did He set us for freedom? Uh, Both the Jew and the Gentile are in bondage. Uh, They're arriving there in different ways, but they're both in bondage. And Paul says, freedom is what Christ came to bring us. To the Gentile brethren, he would say in that same verse, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Three lessons from Paul's liberty. Last week, we were talking about liberty and we were really emphasizing the rights of liberty. When God gives you liberty, no one can take it away. That's one of the lessons we should learn. You would have to yield it to someone, but no one can take liberty God has given Number two, when your liberty is God-given, no one can restrict it. You read Paul's writings on liberty in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10, and and, and he will go through this thing where no one is supposed to infringe upon the liberties of another. No one is supposed to do that. And and when God gives you liberty, number three, then God calls upon you to serve with that liberty— It's God who is doing that. So last week, we talked about the rights of liberty, privileges, if you will. This week, we want to talk about the responsibility of liberty. While it is the case you are in full control of the exercise and limitations of your liberty, your liberty is primarily to be used on you. You are the subject of your own liberty. Secondarily, it's used for others— In the book of James, in just one section, just a few verses, James chapter 4, beginning in verse number 7, James enumerates 10 things that are the responsibility of each Christian with regards to their liberty. This practice, exercise of liberty, contextually is being framed within the context of suffering. The brethren are being persecuted. And now then, James reaches the point of talking about liberty. And so as you think about it this morning, put the freedoms that you have, the the liberty that's yours, all of these rights, in the context of suffering and persecution. And then apply those to the various subjects on which James touches. And he talks about a great many things in this short five-chapter book. He begins talking about trials, outward trials. And then he moves to inward trials. That'll take you the first 12 verses are the outward trials, 13 to 15, the inward trials. From that which is without testing or trying you to temptation to sin, god's word is talked about in chapter one pure religion the end of chapter 1 22 to 27 Equality among brethren, chapter 2. Faith, chapter 2, 14, really, to the end of the chapter 26. The tongue, chapter 3, the entire chapter. Peaceful living and maintaining unity, about verse 13 to 18 in James chapter 3. He talks about wisdom descending from above, and it's pure and peaceable and gentle not conforming to the world chapter 4 in the first three verses prayer he loses elijah was a man of like passions like unto us and he prayed patience enduring the prophets and job chapter 5 and restoring and erring brethren chapter 5 19 and 20. in all of these subjects and the various others that could have been mentioned A person, each Christian within the body, would have to exercise their personal liberty, their rights. Everybody has the same rights, but they would also have to do that responsibly. The responsibility rests on each individual. There are rights, and generally, people love the rights. The responsibility comes along with it. In James chapter 4, he expresses 10 things with regards to our rights. He begins in verse number 7. The first thing James says is, submit yourself to God. God is the one who has spoken on all of the subjects touched in the book. Ultimately, it ties itself back to God. This practice of liberty, the responsibilities that come along with my freedom, Are ultimately given to me by God and therefore the relationship is what drives everything else and so James says submit yourself to God this is the responsibility of every individual to subject oneself to obey it's connected to the very next thing number two he says resist the devil to stand against to oppose to resist The evil one was behind the trials and the temptations, not God. The evil one would have had the saints abandoning God and His Word. When it comes to the troubles of life, the challenges, what they would have been faced with, and very often the things that challenge us, they're not God's doing. God is not making his lives, the children's lives, difficult. God is not making bad decisions on the part of his children. If it is evil, it has its origin and roots back to the devil. The first thing that James says is, submit to God. And when one submits to God, then by that choice, he'll be resisting the devil. He'll be in opposition to what's evil by choosing what's good. You'll notice that James also says submit to God, resist the devil. From the beginning, it's always God that's under attack, and then his word. He's separate from his word. Now, on the one hand, I suppose you could make the case that you can't really separate God from his word in that since he gave it, it ultimately gets back to him, and so they're one and the same. I understand that. What I'm trying to suggest to you is this verse and the whole of the Bible emphasizes God first, apart from his creation apart from his revelation and it is he who drives the revelation the reason the revelation is authoritative is because it comes from god but the emphasis is you start with him and then what he says is what i'm submitting to what he says is what i'm obeying What Satan always does, and from the very beginning, is to seek to put the person at odds with God, and in so doing, bring his word into question. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 and listen to to, to Moses write about it, but listen to Satan's uh, explanation and attempts at Eve in the early part of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, some renderers will say crafty, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, notice the expression, indeed has God said. Well, who said it? Well, did God say this? That's the point. I need to drive a wedge, he does, between you and God. And then you will come into conflict with what God said, if he can get you to think wrong about God. Indeed, as God said, you cannot eat of every tree of the garden. The woman says, the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may freely eat. But from the tree of the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat of it from the day you eat, you will surely die. The serpent says, woman, you won't die, for God knows. The odds, the problem is God. And here's what he said. In fact, it's the way God talks. Look down at verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. Where was the problem, Adam? I said something. And because I said it, You should have obeyed it. The reason the Word is what it is is because the source of that Word is who He is. And so, what James says is, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. What Satan does is tries to drive a wedge between God and the person. And so, what James has already done in the book is he said a great many kind things about God, things that if you don't submit to him, things that if you don't resist the devil, things that would quite naturally come into question. For instance, James opens the book to a group of people who are suffering affliction and adversity. James opens the book by saying, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Ask of God, and he will give it to you. Well, who should you—and now you're in the midst of trial and persecution. James says God is for you. Lacking wisdom, ask God. A little bit later, down in verse number 12 of chapter 1, James will say, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord— The Lord has promised. The Lord, the righteous, if God is going to get, if you endure, God is going to take care of you. Verse 13 of chapter 1, James says, let no man say when he is tempted of evil, he is tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted of evil, neither would he tempt any man. God wouldn't do this to you. Chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will be God he us, that we should be a kind of first truth. Over and over and over and over again in the book, James is saying God is good all the time and all the time. God is—God is for you. God is for you. Over here in chapter 4, submit to God. Resist the devil. And It's interesting that James also accompanies blessings with some of these decisions. What happens if you submit to God? Well, he says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The very next thing, number three, submit to God, resist the devil, chapter 4 and verse 7, draw near to God to make an approach, to get near. In times of trials, adversity, difficulty, what should you do? You should get closer to God. You should draw nearer to God, not further away. What happens if you do? He will draw near to you. Resist the devil, he'll flee. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Let me ask you this. Who's going to do this for you? We talked about the rights of personal liberty. Do you have rights? Absolutely. And if God makes you free, you're free. How many rights do you have? All the rights that God gives. You are a completely free, autonomous person. You are self-governing, and God has made it so. And further, God won't let anybody restrict the liberty he has given you. But it does come with responsibility. Who is going to submit to God for you? Who's going to resist the devil for you? Who's going to draw near to God for you? Number four, cleanse your hands, you sinners. There are clearly challenges in the book as you go through the book, and James enumerates them, and the brethren are struggling with sin. That seems very clear. In chapter 1, for instance, he talks about pure religion. He says in chapter 1 and verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. For if any man is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass; for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridle not his own tongue, he deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain, pure religion, and undefiled before God is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In chapter 2, James talks about the fact that they're making these decisions about other people. They're judging people based on their social standing or some other use. And he warns them about that. My brethren, chapter 2 and verse number 1, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, you have respect unto him that weareth, King James says, the gay clothing, the nice apparel. You have respect to him, and you say to him, sit thou in a good place, and say to the poor man, sit under my footstool. Are ye not then partially yourselves, and are become the judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs together of the kingdom of of, of which— he hath promised to them that love him. As you just keep working your way through the book, it's clear they're challenged by sin. Chapter 2, 14 to 17, what doth it prophet, My brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works, he goes on to say, can faith save him? His illustration is, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and, and they say to you, you say to them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, and you don't give them anything? He says, what good is that? He talks about the tongue in chapter 3, friendship with the world, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He refers to them as adulterers and adulteresses. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. In chapter 4 and verse 12, he talks about judging one another. Not including God in their plans, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. I don't know what, if anything, with which you might be struggling by way of sin. Hopefully not. But if you are, question is, who's going to cleanse your hands? It's not just cleanse your hands, number four, it's number five. And that is, purify your minds, you double-minded Double-mindedness, he touches on the subject back in chapter 1. It's this idea of wavering back and forth. I believe one thing to be true. I'm certain about it. I'm convicted about it. I believe God. I trust God. I want to live for God. And then either trial, circumstance, some other information comes into my mind, and now I'm not sure. In in fact, I vacillate between both. You can find me wavering from one side to the other. James says that's double-mindedness. With regards to prayer and faith, James says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Sometimes people's prayer lives aren't what they want them to be because of the double-mindedness in the person who is doing the praying. You know, you and I shouldn't have an expectation that God will just provide and fawn over our every wish and whim when we have no conviction about Him in the first place. We won't submit to him. We won't resist the devil. We won't do any of the things that he says, but we want him to respond favorably to everything we say. Catch us on Tuesday. I believe in God and I'm fully convicted. See me Thursday. I don't even know if he's up there. I don't know what he's doing. I have no idea when we're other. This is going to make for a good prayer life, don't you think? It's going to make for a rock-solid relationship. No, not at all. James says, purify your minds, ye double-minded. In 6, 7, and 8, in verse number 9, he says three things, all connected. In 6, in verse 9, he says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. To be afflicted is to be wretched, to realize one's own misery, to to mourn is to bewail one's self, to feel the guilt of, of the actions, and then to weep is the sign of pain and grief and thus tears and flowing out of that emotion of grief and pain. You put them together, they're probably connected to the previous two thoughts. He says, draw near to God, resist the devil. Purify your mind, cleanse your hands, and purify your hearts. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. He's mentioned several things that they're doing, and it seems very clear that they are participating and doing things. As James says, you ought to be mourning and weeping and crying over, but instead, you're laughter and enjoying it. Well, what are some of those things? Back in chapter 2, he talks about them courting the rich. He says in chapter two and verse five. You know when the rich man came in, they said, "Oh, here, sit in a good place, falling all over him." Poor man came in, they said, "Yeah, grab a seat anywhere. There's a footstool. See if you can slide yourself under there out of the way." James says, "Hearken, my beloved brethren. Had not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised in love? But you have despised the poor." Do not rich men oppress you, draw you before the judgment seat? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called. The very people who blaspheme Jesus are the ones you're courting. The very people who held you off the prison are the ones you're courting. The, on the other hand, Jesus would say of himself, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What if Jesus had entered the assembly? Which one would he have been? Well, he wouldn't have been the rich man. And so, the Lord could have been told, sit over there anywhere, just find you a place. They're cursing one another, seems to be the case in James chapter 3 and verse number 7. James says, for every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude or likeness of God. He says, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. They are experiencing friendship with the world at chapter 4 and verse number 1. From whence come wars and fighting among you. Come they not even of your lust which war in your members? He says, Of them ye lust and ye have not. Ye fight and ye desire to have, but you cannot obtain. Ye ask, you you, you ask, And you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever will therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. To this group, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your minds, you double-minded. And then he says, be miserable, mourn, and weep. It seems they are laughing and finding joy in all the wrong things. sounds very much like the words spoken to the saints in Corinth in chapter 5 of that book. Paul says there, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and of kind is not even tolerated among the pagans that a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not to mourn? Let him as done this thing be removed from among you. And so here James says, instead of that, you ought to be sorrowful and grieving over the sin. It brings us to number 9 there in verse number 10, where James says, Humble yourselves to depress figuratively, to humiliate in condition or heart, to make low, to bring low. Three things then. First, the what. What is involved? Humility. Secondly, the who. Who is to do that? Yourself. The third thing is, for whom in the sight of the Lord? What's the charge? Humility. Who is to do it? You are. For whom? The Lord. Everything said is done by a person with liberty and full autonomy. In fact, as you think about that, please know, I am absolutely speaking to you individually. I'm saying you have complete autonomy. You from God have complete liberty. And no one can take it from you, restrict it, limit you, tell you you can't exercise it. Nobody can do that. In fact, God will protect you from anybody doing that to you. And now I need you to understand. Every other person has the same rights. You look around the room, I'm talking to you, and that's all you. But everybody else has the same rights and privileges. So, how do we have relationships? How do we have a body that is the church? How do we have a family at home? If everybody is free, true, if everybody's a t- true, if everybody has comp- absolutely. Because there's rights and responsibilities. What are the responsibilities in the expression of those liberties? It's God. You know how this section began? Submit, therefore, to God. Who's supposed to do that? You. 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 If I could say you for the whole number of room people in the room, then yes, you are to submit to God. Everybody is charged. Submit to God. Resist the devil draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be miserable, mourn, and weep. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord with the accompanying blessing, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you if you humble yourself before him. Number 10, speak not evil one of another, brethren verse number 11. They're doing it. That's why James talks about it. Chapter 2, we looked at it. Chapter 3, the tongue. Don't slander, accuse, speak evil of your brethren. James goes on to explain when you do, when you judge, when you distinguish, when you punish, when you condemn, he says when you speak evil of your brother, you speak evil of the law. You set yourself up as the judge. If you are the judge, then you are exempt. And so, when you do this, you take the position of now being the one to dictate to everybody else. James says, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. The question would be, how did you get that position? Who gave you that position in a sea of equality? There is somebody who holds that position, but you know what? In order for you to get it, you got to move them off the throne. Well, who is the judge? That would be verse number 12, the end of the section. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. There is one. We know who it is. There is one. And then James asks, who are you to judge your neighbor?" If you remove God, who allowed you to do that? If you become the judge, who gave you the right to do that? In fact, we might also ask, if you become the judge, where is your submission to the Lord? Verse 7. If you become the judge, where is your mourning and cleansing and purifying of your hearts? If you become the judge, where is your humility before God? Because practically speaking, then you've replaced God. Let's make some quick application in the time we have remaining then about these things. We've said, let's review, everyone has the same liberty and rights. Sometimes people misunderstand. They think they're the only ones who have them. That's not true. Every person has them. It's also true that no one can properly take away your liberty. No one can do that. In fact, if your liberty is taken, you'd have to concede it. Nobody can take it. You cannot and you must not infringe on the liberty of others. You can't do that. God will prevent it. We're studying the book of Romans. We'll see it in chapter 14. God will not allow this. You cannot submit someone else. There's no passage in the Bible that teaches that. The Bible never says, husbands submit your wives. Never says that. Never says that. It says husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We might say it says nourish them and cherish them. It says that, but it never says submit them. Let me ask you this. Well, who's going to submit her? Her. (laughs) Wives, submit yourselves. If she doesn't do it, it won't get done. Who is calling upon her to do it? Oh, that would be the Lord. Her first submission is to him. And if she'll do that, she'll follow his word. That's the way it works. If she doesn't choose to do that, there's nobody who can submit her. The verse says, submit yourself. Submit to God. Every passage to my knowledge on the subject of submission puts only the person in charge of that. Nobody else can do it for another person. You can't draw near to God for somebody else. You can't resist the devil for somebody else. You can't purify and cleanse your hands. somebody else. You can't humble somebody else. You cannot do that. In fact, when it comes to liberty, hold in your mind Matthew seven twelve, And whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets." If you don't want to be submitted by someone else, then don't try to submit somebody. If you don't want to be humbled by somebody else, then don't try to humble somebody. In fact, I would urge you stop trying to do to others what you don't want done to you. Chances are real good that the person who is trying to submit somebody doesn't want to be submitted. Hello. The person who's trying to humble somebody doesn't want somebody else humbling them. It's just not typically the way it works. Why not? Well, they've made themselves the judge. It's just not the way it works. Nobody wants it done to them. Everyone has the responsibility of exercising those rights in relationship to God. Chapter 4 and verse number 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so, what should you do? Verse 7, submit yourself to God. Embrace your liberty, but not just the rights of liberty, the responsibility of liberty. In fact, people often love the rights, and they will tell you. In fact, they'll generally say it with a certain amount of attitude. Can anybody tell me what to do? Can anybody judge me? Can anybody tell me how far, how many, how much, how often? Anybody tell me how much to spend and where to spend my money. You can't tell me. You can't tell me what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat. Can anybody tell me that? Anybody tell me where to go, who to be with, who to hang around, who to love? Nobody can tell me. And you know, everything that I've said so far would seem like, Eric, don't you agree with that? And I would have to say to some degree, yeah, there's some truth to all of those thoughts. But they don't tell the full story. Number one, God has spoken, and so he is the one who's telling. You might be right when you say, can't nobody, but you can't exclude God. God is the one telling. Number two, God has spoken to you and put you in charge of you. So you know who is designed to tell you? You are. You're supposed to tell you where to go, what to do, when to do it, and how much and how—you're in charge of that. And where would you get your information for how to do it? You're supposed to get that from God. God tells you, and then you're supposed to use Him, and you tell you. And how many times have you said to yourself, I know I shouldn't have? Well, who was going to tell you? Boy, if I knew then what I knew now, well, who was going to tell you? You know who was going to—you were supposed to tell you, don't do that. You were supposed to tell you, don't say that. You were supposed to tell you, don't do that. Uh-uh, don't act like that. Don't do—you were supposed to. Number three, God has actually gifted you help because God is good. And so, God has given parents for children. Children come into this world, hopefully blessed with two loving parents who first submit to God and then care for their children. And what will they do? Immediately restrict their liberties. How often have your children said, but I want to? And parents say, but you're not going to. Well, I won't, I won't, I won't. Yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Here's why. As the child grows, the parent keeps restricting liberty, and then they expand the opportunities for self-autonomy. It grows proportionate to the maturation of the child. What has God done? He's given help. Child couldn't get there by himself, and so God has given parents to help the children. And what do the parents do? Well, to some degree, they restrict the children's liberty. But you know what God has given in the church? Elders. What are elders to do? Shepherd God's sheep. In fact, if you were to read through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, when God is very critical, it's of shepherds who don't feed his sheep and care for his sheep as he would. But sometimes the shepherds then have these these, these thoughts, these ideas, these ways they're going to help shepherd and govern God's flock. You know what? It feels sometimes restrictive. Why we got to do that? Who said this? Who, oh yeah, go see the Why we got to see? God gave the elders for this very purpose. God has given government to citizens. Romans 13, the powers that be are ordained or ordered of God. 1 Peter 2, 17, submit yourself therefore to every ordinance. And then their spouses… None of these helps, though, ever take away your liberty. They're all supplied and intended to help you in the exercise of these liberties. So where does it go wrong and why then do people fail? Best I can ascertain it is that people want the exercise of their liberty. They want that. I want to govern me. I want to be in charge. You are. You got it. But then they want to control and determine other people's response to the exercise of their liberty. So on the one hand, I want my liberty and my freedom. On the other hand, I want to deny yours. I want to restrict your reaction, which is wholly your liberty. But I want to restrict that because I want to control both. I don't want to just exercise my liberty, I want to tell you how to respond to my exercise of my liberty. I want both. I tell people sometimes you can only play on one side of the net. Have you ever played tennis or pickleball? You can only play on one side of the net. What is your privilege and opportunity? You get to hit the ball when it comes on your side. Good enough. Once you hit it though, you have no say. And what happens on the other side of the net? Who's in charge of that? or the fully functioning other autonomous person. And you don't get to hit the ball, run around to the other side, and then coach the person on how to respond. That's not what you get to do. Although it seems that's exactly what so many people want to do. I want to do what I want to do and then control how you respond to what I just did. This is why people fail. Number three, They don't want the consequences that come along with their freedom. You have absolute freedom, absolutely, by all means, go practice, do what you do. But you can't stop the consequences. You can absolutely do what you want to do, eat what you want to eat, spend what you want to spend, hang out with who you want to hang out with. You can do all the things, but you can't do any of it without consequence. And it seems that as people fight each other, I want to do what I want to do, then control you, they also want to fight God in his ordered world. God has built in consequences. You'll want to see the law of sowing and reaping, Genesis 1, 11, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. God has done this. And you can't fight the consequences. Can you do it? Yes. Are there consequences to your decisions? Absolutely and you can't overcome or fight against those. James says, submit to God. Humble yourself in the sight of God. Question, what has God said? I can tell you among many things that God has said is add to your faith self-control. Has God spoken on the subject of marriage? Absolutely. One man, one woman for life. Has God spoken on the subject of money? Absolutely. Don't love that stuff, First Timothy 6, 6 to 10. Contentment, God has spoken on that. People are angry with God because we can't avoid the consequences that God has built into the world. In fact, in another sermon, maybe you can just see it really quickly, but can you see how pride would work against everything we've said here this morning? Can you see how selfishness would work against everything we've said here this morning? Can you see how self-centeredness, if you entered the space and demanded that everybody just relax their liberty and let you do every and anything you want, can you see how that's going to work against the relationships? Why do relationships fail? Well, this is why. One person in said relationships wants to practice their liberty and then restrict the other person from practicing theirs. Question, will I submit to God? Will I humble myself in the sight of God? I should say very quickly, next week we'll talk about our responsibility up to others. If this is what I'm supposed to do to myself, and coincidentally, there's much more that could be said with regards to our actions toward ourselves, like deny yourself, examine yourself, and a host of other passages. Maybe we'll look at them in the future, but next week, Lord's will, we'll look at our responsibilities to each other then in the freedom and exercise of this liberty. I hope that you can see how quickly relationships will deteriorate if we don't exercise the responsibility to govern ourselves in the interaction with God and with others. It might be the case this morning that you're not a Christian, and if that is the case, then friends, (laughs) as we said, you have liberty too. The fact is, you do have liberty. When God made us in His image, Genesis 1, 26, 27, He made us free, and that freedom could be exercised to even reject Him. And the world did. Genesis 6, it did, Cain and Abel, uh, Cain did, Adam and Eve disobeyed, Cain disobeyed, the world gave itself to sin, Genesis 6. The same freedom and liberty that God gave man, he exercised it to reject God. You could do that too, but you can't do it without consequence. You see, you are going to leave this life, and there is a judgment to come. And so, what God is pleading with you is, use your liberty, your freedom, your self-autonomy to give your life to him the way he gave Christ for you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God John 8 24 Jesus said if you believe not that I am you will die in your sins note the words of the Lord you will die in your sins and where I am you cannot come these are the words of Jesus in John eight twenty four. You simply have to believe he's the son of God. You have to repent. Change your heart and your mind. You have to do that. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, I tell you nay, except ye repent, you will likewise perish. You have to confess the name of Jesus. Romans 10, 9, and 10, we do that with our mouth. It brings us unto salvation. And then we are buried with him in baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 5, Mark 16, 15, and 16, Acts two thirty eight. This baptism puts us into Christ. It's where the old man goes to die and the new man rises and walks in newness of life. That new life is a changed mind. It's a new life. It's all of these things, commitment, dedication to God and to Christ, humility, submission, drawing near, resisting, all of those things. If you've never done that, we take this time in the sermon, to offer you an opportunity to do that. We don't want you to think this is the only opportunity, for if you see one of the elders, members, me, anybody, and would like to talk more, we'd be more than happy to do that. If you are a child of God, I want to be among the greatest champions of the freedom that we have in Christ. But I also want to champion the responsibility that we have to God and to self and then to each other. Nobody is going to humble me except me. Nobody is going to submit to God for me except me. And nobody is going to stop my tongue but me. And when we don't do that, we suffer, our relationships suffer, and the body suffers. If you need to repent, please make things right with God. And then do what God says for you and exercise the responsibility of your liberty. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing